ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Hi, I'm Anna Ferris, and I have this podcast fittingly titled Anna Ferris is Unqualified, where each week a different celebrity and I attempt to give relationship and dating advice. Recent co-hosts have included Matthew McConaughey. You got somebody you care about, you lost track of them. Go find out. Margaret Cho. Vacation <laughs> sex is always irresistible. Gwyneth Paltrow. I could make it all about them and not have to focus on my own problems. <laughs> and Seth Rogen. <laughs> so if you're wondering what your favorite celebrity or I would do in your situation, just listen and subscribe to Anna Ferris is Unqualified. Free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcast everywhere. Acast.com. Hello, listeners. I'm Amy McKinnon, national security reporter at Foreign Policy, and this is Foreign Policy Playlist. Let us be your guide to the crazy number of podcasts out there. Each week, we recommend one podcast from somewhere around the world. And this week, I'm featuring Power of the Streets by Human Rights Watch, which speaks with young human rights activists fighting for change in Africa. This first series features in-depth and intimate interviews with the people driving the Me Too movement, from Nigeria to Malawi to Gambia. In just a minute, we're going to play the episode called Where the Heart Is, which features Thomas Shamuyarira, a migrant rights activist in South Africa. Progressive legal protections for LGBT people have drawn queer and trans migrants and asylum seekers to South Africa from elsewhere in the region. But as we'll hear in the episode, it's far from plain sailing once they get there. But before we get to that, I spoke with the show's host, Audrey Kawire-Wawire, about why they decided to create the podcast. Here's our conversation. Audrey, thank you for joining us. I really enjoyed listening to this series. I found it's very intimate. I found myself being very drawn in by these one-on-one -on -one conversations that you have with your guests. And actually, how do you find your guests for the show? Um, so we had a long, long list of African activists and... Unfortunately, you know, when we discussed everything, we felt like we can only have eight episodes in the first podcast. It's HRW's flagship podcast. So a lot of thinking and imagining what uh, this will be like. And so it was just, I think, luck that the first eight people we called um, are the ones who said that they can do it. But there's many, many more people I wish we could have had time to feature or that we can feature next time. And they're all such good storytellers as well. Well, they're African activists, so they're pretty amazing people. I think, you know, that are the front lines of everything, so they have really powerful stories. So I knew that everyone's going to have something really uh, strong to tell us, really interesting stories that people would relate to. It also feels like a podcast that has a real purpose. I mean, when you were devising this, what did you have in mind as you were making the podcast? We wanted to hear from and also feature young African activists who are really leading the movements, uh, the human rights movement on the continent right now. And to, you know, have a platform for them to speak to the world, but also to speak to each other. And also just hearing their experiences, 
what challenges they're facing. But um, seeing these people as people, you know, if you see someone on the street every day at the front of a newspaper every day you have this vision of who they are but when someone comes back and tells you know I'm the firstborn my father's a pastor and I'm in the newspaper every day Um, I come from a very conservative background you then relate to them because either you're someone like that or you know someone like that so it was really a discussion to know who these people are to hear about their work and just share their voices with more people and inspire the people to also start speaking out for change. And so the first season is all about the Me Too movement in Africa. And I'm just wondering if you could expand a little bit more about how this movement is taking shape in the countries that are featured in the series. Well, the Me Too movement is this global uprising against sexual violence, sexual harassment. And African women have always been resisting, have always been standing up to structures, to people, to communities, and trying to be free. So... When the movement became bigger because uh, there were voices in the West speaking about them, many African women, you know, recognized this as a resistance that had already been building. And for the countries we featured, it was really interesting to see um, how women are talking about aid too. So that's the sexism and racism faced by women who are working in the humanitarian sector, which is very big in Africa, but also white male dominated. Um, Speaking about these experiences and what they're doing to stand up against it. And hearing from a woman activist who is pushing for good governance in her country and what she faces as a woman who is in politics. Politics is still very male dominated in Africa, although there are some strong you know, women in leadership, it's still a field where women are not really included. So hearing from people who are standing up like that, hearing from um, an activist who is working with LGBT migrants in South Africa who have faced violence at home, but they have uh, difficulty seeking asylum because they don't have documentation proving that they faced violence. But they could have never gotten documentation because just being who they are, homosexuality is criminalized back home. So they are caught in between these two sides. And what was very interesting for me was that, you know, very many young people, Africa is a youthful continent, and very many young people are saying, no, this cannot continue anymore. Many leaders may be old and uh, clinging on to really old ways, really unjust ways of leading our countries. But young people have really had enough and they're leading the movements by themselves. How is that shaping the human rights movement in Africa that you do have these very young populations? So one common thread I saw among the people I spoke with is internet becoming more accessible. It is still very, very expensive, but more young people are using the internet, especially on their phones. And this really helps in building communities across regions where it might be difficult to travel, it might be too expensive, but now people can build communities across regions, across countries, and also building support. Someone we spoke to said she thought that she was the only one that this has ever happened to, but the more she spoke about it, she had that, oh, this is something that happens and you guys also don't like this and you guys are fighting it and it's really inspirational. So 
I feel like there's one more story I have to tell you. Um, something that, you know, makes me happy every time I remember. So in Tanzania, there are women who, um, they're called the Sisters Army or Dada's Army in Kiswahili. And they specifically come online or come to your aid when as a woman you're being trolled or cyberbullied. So this is something that might not have been there maybe a decade ago. But now it's really a growing movement that activists are coming together, women are coming together, LGBT people are coming together and speaking out and saying that, you know, we are here, you'll have to reckon with us and you're going to have to protect us because we have equal rights with everyone else. The beginning of each episode opens with a little bit of a thesis, right, that everyone has this moment where they step up and rise, as you put it. Is that your hope with these podcasts, that they will inspire others to do the same, to have their moments? Yes, I really hope that people will be inspired to rise, to, you know, um, speak up in that little uncomfortable moment, because it doesn't always start big. Um, It starts really in your family, among your friends, among um, your workmates. So that little thing that you feel like, you know, this is an injustice, this is inequality, I, I, I really hope, and I know that these activists really hope that, you know, they may be great big names right now, but they started from one little step. And I hope that more people can see that you can make a difference, you can start a movement in your own little way. Um, and I hope this pushes those conversations further. That was Audrey Kawire Wabwire, host of Power of the Streets by Human Rights Watch. And here's the episode, Where the Heart Is. This is Power of the Streets, a podcast series brought to you by Human Rights Watch about how we speak truth to power. I'm Audrey Kawire Wabwire, and I'm based in Nairobi, Kenya. We've been hearing from some of the people driving Africa's Me Too movement, and that journey now takes us to the LGBT migrant community in South Africa. Everyone we speak to in the series has a second, a minute, or an hour when they realize that they need to make a change. The moment when they decide to step up and rise. Homosexuality or it's it's just a it's that elephant in the room that issue that nobody ever wants to address or ever talk about so i i i didn't know i didn't know anything i just knew that i felt differently from the way that everybody else my age was feeling you know and i didn't know what to make of it I didn't know who to talk to about it. I didn't know who to ask. So it was it was really confusing. Tomas Shamuyarira is a transgender man born and raised in Zimbabwe, and he's been living in South Africa for 10 years. He speaks about the hardships of growing up in a country where sexual orientation and gender identity outside of being heterosexual and cisgender is frowned upon and even taboo. I just had to try and just be like everybody else. Do the things that the other girls my age were doing just so that I could, yeah, fit in. But even though I did my very best, I just knew 
that that was not that was not me you know that was not who i was and yeah i just had to figure things out and and how did you get to learn more about yourself was there a person you met you know you're saying there were no books magazines how did you then you know what was the journey how did the journey begin to find yourself okay so yeah um in high school i had a best friend i she thought we were best friends but for me it was obviously more than that i had other feelings for her other than those of of, of friendship i i i loved her actually and yeah so for her it was just oh okay we are very close we are best friends and we always we are always together we're doing everything together we spend most of our time together and for me it was something else so uh then i knew okay that that i was different because obviously at that point every other girl my age was into boys they were starting to fall in love with boys but for me it was just not the same i didn't know what it means still at that point and then i think how i came to discover or to actually figure out what it meant what i was and was way after high school when i met a masculine presenting woman who is um a lesbian so i think they called butch lesbians or studs i met her i didn't know what what she was also at that point but i just saw her and i sort of like saw myself in her you know like what i've always wanted to i mean like how i've always wanted to dress how i've always wanted to present myself i saw that in 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 that person so i approached her and i spoke to her and her being a female that is attracted to other females she thought she assumed when she saw me walk up to her that i liked her in that way but for me it was just like oh that person you know i i just want to be friends with her so that you know i don't know we can just be friends because i see myself in her so the two exchanged phone numbers and continued chatting she introduced me to girls so there was actually a function happening at their at their premises and she took me there like i think a day or two after we met and yeah my life changed <laughs> that's when i i just knew like when i got there i was shocked they were like boys that looked like girls they were girls that looked like boys they were just a whole you know it was just a whole different world for me so from there that's when i started learning from there that's when i started to get an understanding to say oh okay so what i am is lesbian and i'm 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 putting air quotes i'm using air quotes here but you can't see me obviously so like i was like oh okay so if i'm a girl that is attracted to other girls then that means i'm a lesbian and then there's you know and if boys that are attracted to other boys they're called gay and and all of that so the moment that i met her i mean that's i can say that's when the education or the the journey began for me to understanding who i was to getting to where i am today i think meeting that that person was the beginning of everything for me mm mm so so finding that community and you know 
something that you've never been exposed to before was it were these like friends who you know your family knew about and so how was that journey between you know you finding um this new family and your family at home yeah so yeah um i started dating this 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 girl that was very out and very proud so you know you're in the closet and you're dating somebody who is out and proud they can't be pulled back into the closet for any reason and you can't come out of the closet that quick because you know you have to there's there's a lot of things that you need to consider before you put yourself out there so yeah people started talking and my sister heard about it and then also yeah somebody had told my mom also about me being seen with people that look very suspicious boys that look like girls and girls that look like boys and my mom approached me and asked me about it at some point and i denied it that they were just there we just happened to be in the same place at the same time but we were not together you know so yeah so one time me and my sister had a fight and then she sort of like just told my mom that i was a lesbian because she was very angry with me so my mom because she had also been hearing all of these things from different people she then she 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 didn't even have to ask me because it made sense you know and yeah that's that's how it caught up with me i was then disowned in instantly like disowned kicked out and told never to come back and told that i was a disgrace to the human race to the family you know so <laughs> it yeah it's funny now but then back then it was it 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 wasn't it wasn't funny at all yeah mm, mm. okay Hey, my name is Coleman Hughes and I'm the host of the podcast Conversations with Coleman. I think that our country is in flames already. We are headed toward the end of the American project. The ability to think and speak freely is what moves society forward. Where I have honest, unfiltered conversations about the most pressing issues of our time. Our world is becoming more polarized. Partisan hatred has infected every sphere of life. You can be canceled for having opinions that depart from the consensus of a few social media. Join me every week on Conversations with Coleman as I challenge convention, question everything, and seek the truth with an open mind. Okay. Um in this series we are focusing on the Me Too movement in Africa. And the violence faced by LGBT people is an important part of this movement and you're an activist in South Africa. Your work revolves around supporting migrant LGBT people. But, you know, before we go into that, Tell me about your migration story. Why did you decide to leave a place that was home? Um okay, it wasn't really a personal decision, but then you know like after I was disowned and kicked out, then my mom I think after a year plus, yeah, after almost 2 years, she then I don't know what it was okay then she just called me out of the blue and then instructed me to come back home so yeah where I was wasn't nice so I was like okay I know that if I go back home it's not going to be the same obviously 
But yeah, I'm in hell already now with this person in this place. So which hell is better than the other, you know? So I just made the decision like, okay, since she said I must come home, let me go. I have nothing to lose. So I went back home. And as I predicted, home wasn't home anymore. It wasn't nice. It wasn't comfortable. It wasn't good for me. The people in the area also, they, they had heard about why I was disowned and why I was kicked out. So everybody was talking and also at home, like it was very difficult for my mom to accept and to understand like, how is it even possible? Like, where did you get it in the family? They've not heard about it. Nobody else is like me. So why me, you know? So it was very difficult for me and I, for her. But she, she called you to come back home. Didn't she know that, you know, you'll just come back as yourself? Or what was the understanding there? I don't know. Maybe it was like, okay, so you've learned your lesson. Yeah, like it wasn't, it wasn't home anymore. I wasn't free to laugh. I wasn't free to just be, you know, a child in, in, in their mom's house, you know. It wasn't like that. So uh, there came a point where I I have a sister who was already living here in SA. So she had a tenant that was going to open a business, a, a hair salon. So she needed people to to help her with that. So my sister then knew that I was there at home, not doing anything, and she told my mom about this person and this this opportunity so yeah they were like okay yes i can come to south africa only if i promise that i will stop this thing <laughs> or that if i promise that i was going to change and i was going to look at women the way that i looked at women and and stuff you know so what options did i have i made the promise i said i was going to change i said i wasn't going to do it anymore i said i was going to be the best daughter ever i was going to do my best so yeah after making those promises then yeah the arrangements were made and i came to sa so, yeah, I was living with my sister and I was working with, with this woman at this hair salon. But then I, this wasn't a good idea, was it? Putting me in a place where women... <laughs> <laughs> of course you are going to, you know, fall in love. Oh God! Of all the places to to put a to put a a lesbian identifying woman, put them in a place where different kinds of women walk in every single day. Yeah, so I fell in love with someone, <laughs> and this was like barely a month after I moved here, you know, and after making the promise that I would never do it again. So, yeah, obviously the woman was a straight woman. She was not a lesbian. She was just attracted to men. And, yeah, you know how it is. Wanting something that you can never have, it's it's crazy. But then because you want it so much, you're willing to die or do anything and try your very best to get it. So that's the pre predicament that I found myself in. I fell in love with a straight girl and... 
you know, when you like somebody, you can hide that you like somebody. But when you love, when you're in love with someone, it's you you cannot hide that. You can do your best, but then you just fail, you know. So that's what happened. I fell in love with this woman and yeah, my sister ended up finding out. She kicked me out. She found out it was a girl and she kicked me out. So luckily the lady now that that I was working for, the one with the hair salon, she was like, you're going to kick her out. Where is she going to go? Because then, you know, we're working, but then we're not making in a lot of money yet at the salon and I'm not paying her enough. How is she going to survive? You know, so... I'm going to go with her and then we're going to look for a place and we're going to share so that I can help out. So my sister was like, good riddance, just just get out, the both of you, you know. So we left and then I started leaving with her. So, yeah, that's, that's how I ended up here. While living in Zimbabwe, Tomas was automatically identified as a lesbian because he was seen as a woman attracted to other women. But he always felt masculine and he wanted to express himself in that way. It was only when he moved to South Africa where he discovered the term transgender and this unleashed his confidence to begin transitioning. And so you, like many other LGBT Africans, migrate to South Africa. Why is this? Why is it? Well, <laughs> it's the easiest place for us to get to, number one. And then it's also... Like, it's not a criminal offense to be yourself here, to be gay, to be trans, to be queer, to be lesbian, to be bisexual. You can be yourself freely in this country, which is why it is, which is why we, we everybody, even until today, there are so many LGBT people that are in there countries that criminalize homosexuality that wish or that hope to get to SA one day, you know, because of that. That's all we want. We don't want so much. We just want the freedom to be ourselves, you know, that chance to just love who we want to love freely and not have somebody arresting you for that. You know, we can be ourselves here. I think that's why. And also the economy here is... is thriving compared to other African countries. So, yeah. Now, well, now that, you know, considering those factors, um, now now that you're, you're like someone is there at the border, is it easy to get the process of gaining asylum as an African LGBT migrant? Um, what's that like exactly? It is very complicated. <laughs> um. Okay, so this is how the whole process or system is supposed to work. You are supposed to state at the port of entry your intentions of seeking asylum, right? But then um, people actually opt to just get in as a tourist or as a, as a visitor and then they... Um, find their way once they, they, they've settled in. So from my understanding, from the conversations that we've heard with people, is that, um, one, it's scary. 
you never know, you know. You never know who you're going to talk to. You don't know how they're going to receive you and you don't know if they're actually willing, they're going to be willing to to take you through the process if they actually want you to proceed, you know. This is the very, very wrong way of doing it. But then again, what options or what other choice do people have? Because you don't want to be sent back. That is the worst thing that can ever happen to you. Yeah, I, I can see that, you know, dilemma of trying to do it legally or going back home to face violence, potential violence. Yeah, you know, like going back to whatever it is that you were running away from. So then the process then again now is once you get in, you now need to follow the process where you go to a refugee reception office and then state your case and... Yeah, that is also not very easy because we've had cases or situations where people were asked to prove that they're really gay or people were asked why they are gay, you know. There's just no way to do that. Like they need proof of why you're escaping. Yeah, so for example, you need to come with a... Because then you you, you have to have gone through an ordeal where maybe you were attacked and then you uh, 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 reported the case so you have to have maybe the the police reports or maybe there was an incident and then you ended up in the papers, in the newspaper, so you have to bring a newspaper article and say, look at this, you know. Uh, yeah, that is, that is really difficult because, you know, you were saying that you are leaving home. You are afraid of, you know, people's words turning into something physical, but they want proof of something physical. What it is, is the fact that the constitution of your country says criminalizes homosexuality. That's reason enough for you to leave and come and seek asylum here, you know. That's reason enough for you to leave and go seek asylum anywhere else. Now, let's go back to your... Um, activism, when you look at your childhood and your experiences as a migrant, what's the exact moment that pushed you to speak up and become an activist? Was it a moment or a series of events? If something happens, especially if it's something bad, I always imagine how people that are less, let me not say less privileged, that are more disadvantaged than I am, I always imagine how they are dealing with the situation or coping with that situation. Because me, with the little advantage that I have, I'm actually struggling. What more somebody, you know, else? So it was always that for me. The fruit basket, like, was was born out of, I always want to say, frustration and passion. My passion to want to help people. And then the frustration of not knowing who to turn to when I need assistance, like going to people to look for certain assistance and people not knowing how to help me and referring me to the next person and the next person actually saying, why did they send you to me? Because, you know, type of, type of situation. And then I was just like, okay, I am here now in this situation, in this foreign land. What do I do? 
Okay, so I am not a professional. I, I don't have the experience. I know nothing at all about all of these issues, you know. I am still trying to figure things out. I am still trying to figure myself out. But then again, okay, so in the process of me figuring things out, in the process of me trying to find out what to do to get what I want, in the process of me just trying to find a way to survive in this foreign land, why don't I just create something, a platform that can then, as I get help for myself, I get it for everybody else at the same time, you know? Well, that's that's really inspiring to me. That's really admirable um, how you've come to where you are. And, you know, talking about your organization, The Fruit Basket, you just mentioned it. You do a lot of impressive work for migrant LGBT people in South Africa. Tell me more about the organization. Um, what, what exactly do you do? Um, and, and what have you achieved so far? So I created the fruit basket so that LGBT asylum seekers and refugees like myself can just have that place where they can run to whatever challenge or whatever problem that they may be facing. We now act as a referral system. So if somebody comes with whatever challenge and we are unable to help them as the fruit basket, we know where to direct them to. We know that if they can go to a certain place or a certain organization with a reference saying that the fruit basket referred us to you, they will be able to get that kind that assistance. You know, this is like a practical solution. Oh, okay, you need a place to stay. I'm going to help you to get a place to stay. You need food to eat. Okay, we're going to do our best to help you to get food. That's what we are focusing on, on at the moment providing practical solutions to people's challenges that they're facing on a daily basis. We want to focus on, you know, helping with with this documentation issue because then if you start looking at people and the problems that they're facing, most of them come from this, you know, this is like the root of, of all the problems. That's where they're coming from. Yeah, and as you're winding up, you know, you're pretty busy, Thomas. Um, you're doing a lot of work, really cool stuff. How are you taking care of yourself? Okay, so for me, like, I, I love, I love, 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 love working out more than anything. So I do work out. I, I run, like, almost every morning, five kilometers. That helps me a lot. Five kilometers? I know. I do, yes. Mm. That really helps me a lot. I wake out. I, uh, but I know I I need to I need to to do more. Like I need to talk to professionals <laughs> because last year I got married. Yeah. This was in July, Aww. and then in November everything just came crumbling down, and I'm not married anymore. So you know, I think that goes. <laughs> I think I need to contact a Guinness world, a world record so they can just put mine as the shortest marriage in the history of marriages. I know. Yeah, so that, that I have not dealt with that yet. Mm. And I, you know, like, like a lot of like good things and bad things happened 
at the same time mm. and i didn't know and i still don't know how to feel you know like by my divorce and my top surgery happened two days apart oh and the united nations innovation award that the fruit basket won the announcement came i think about a few days after that you know so it's like the worst thing and the best thing happened at the same time and i don't know how to feel you know like i i'm like okay so do I celebrate my surgery that I've wanted for the longest time that I've waited for? Mm. Uh, oh, okay. I just got divorced. Oh, houses. Oh, I just won. We just won this this big award. We just got the recognition and the visibility that we've always wanted. Mm-hmm. You know, like, so at the moment, I don't know. I just feel like one day I will just explode. And <laughs> yeah. so, yeah. Okay. Tomas, what's your message for other activists doing the work of protecting LGBT people from violence on the continent? First of all, thank you guys for the work that you do. It is essential, you know. Um, Sometimes people just need that person to look up to, that person that can just stand in front of them and then lead them and take them to wherever that they 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 want to go and you guys are doing that and you guys are that are those people for for the communities that you serve you've been listening to power of the streets a podcast series brought to you by human rights watch i'm audrey kawire wabwire in nairobi kenya that's the end of our show check out our show notes for more about Tomas and his work at the fruit basket And that was the episode Where the Heart Is from Power of the Streets by Human Rights Watch. My thanks to Human Rights Watch for sharing their podcast with us. You can find the rest of the season on the Human Rights Watch website or on your podcast app. That's all for Foreign Policy Playlist today. If you liked what you heard, please subscribe. And if you want to suggest a great podcast, please email us at podcasts at foreignpolicy.com. The show is hosted by me, Amy McKinnon, and is produced by Darcy Palder, Rob Sachs, Rosie Julin, and Simone Perez. Our executive producer of podcasts is Dan Efron. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Hi, I'm Anna Ferris, and I have this podcast fittingly titled Anna Ferris is Unqualified, where each week a different celebrity and I attempt to give relationship and dating advice. Recent co-hosts have included Matthew McConaughey. You got somebody you care about, you lost track of them. Go find out. Margaret Cho. Vacation <laughs> sex is always irresistible. Gwyneth Paltrow. I could make it all about them and not have to focus on my own problems. <laughs> and Seth Rogen. <laughs> so if you're wondering what your favorite celebrity or I would do in your situation, just listen and subscribe to Anna Ferris is Unqualified. Free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com. <laughs>